Well, let's pray as we turn to the word of God. To you alone, O Lord, belongs the highest praise. And as we look at your word now, we pray that it would fly into our hearts, that we might realize just how great you are in rescuing us and in bringing us to your family, that we might have that security to know that in Christ we are more than conquerors. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's turn to the book of Romans and chapter 8. Now, you thought we'd finished with chapter 8 last week. We have, but I told you about my detachment issues with Romans chapter 8. And they grew stronger on Monday and stronger throughout the week. So, I never can say goodbye, no, 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 to Romans chapter 8. And I thought twice before I closed the door on Romans chapter 8, and one last time, we're going to go through it. But we're not going to go through it verse by verse. We're just going to have a reminder and a refresher on what we have seen for, well, the past few months, really, on Romans chapter 8. So I have Romans chapter 8 open. We're going to read it as we carry on uh, this morning. So the first thing to say about Romans chapter 8 is to note the beginning and the ending. You'll see this on our screen now, the beginning and the ending of Romans chapter 8. The first verse is, there is therefore now no condemnation. And the last verse in verse 39 finishes like this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So it starts with no condemnation and travels all the way through to no separation. And those are the kinds of uh, bookends of Romans 8. No condemnation leading to no separation. So we can be sure that in Jesus Christ, we will never come under condemnation of God. And nor will we ever be separated from the love of God. And that is the theme of this whole chapter in Romans chapter 8. The theme of our eternal spiritual security in Christ. The confidence we can have in God and the assurance that as God has accepted us, so he will never, ever reject us. And all this, these two verses tell us, is in Christ. For notice how we've highlighted those verses, in Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So, the key to this chapter, to understanding it, enjoying it, and experiencing it, is to know that these things are only true of us in Christ Jesus. So, what is it? to be in Christ. Well, we use the expression often about being in something, sometimes something not, not too pleasant. Uh, we're in a mess. Well, that's difficult. Or we're in trouble. Well, that's not good for us. Or we could say in the opposite, I'm in love. Well, that's happy. Or I'm in the money. And you feel spend free. All kinds of things we can be in. And when we describe ourselves as in something, 
were meaning that that thing that we are in defines us and even controls us. Whatever it is that you are in, that's defining you at this moment, and it is also probably controlling you. So to say that you are in Christ means that Christ defines us and Christ controls us. And we get into Christ by faith in Jesus and repentance of our sin. There come, we're not born in Christ. We are born in sin. So we need to get into Christ. And we do that in a moment in time when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. So to be in Christ is a really pleasant thing. To have this Son of God defining us and this Son of God ruling us and controlling us, that's not a threatening thing. That's not a miserable thing. It's not an unpleasant thing. To be in Christ is the best thing ever. To be in Christ means that you have found the one that you've always been looking for, but you didn't know it was him. To be in Christ means that you have found the happiness and security and freedom that your soul craves for. To be in Christ means that you have found the satisfaction that your soul is longing for in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you might look at Romans chapter 8 and say, well, that's all very nice, but it's not me. If you are in Christ, you can look at Romans chapter 8 and say, this is brilliant, and that's me. I'm there in Romans chapter 8 in Christ. So let's think then, let's travel through the chapter, and let's think of those wonderful things that are true of the woman or man who is in Christ. The first thing is this, it's on our screen, that if you are in Christ, you are under no condemnation. These things we've looked at over the past months, let's refresh our hearts and minds with them. Let me read verses 1 to 4, Romans 8, 1 to 4, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And verse 4 defines why verse 1 is true. How come we are under no condemnation? Verse 4, because the righteous requirement of the law is fully met in us. That is an absolutely amazing verse. The righteous requirement of God's law is met in us. And you say, well, how can that be? Because I'm a sinner. I break God's law. I, I turn away from God. I should be condemned. Yes. But these verses tell us that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he, the non-guilty one, should become the guilty one and take the condemnation of guilty ones, and he should give us the righteousness that he worked on earth. 
so that we become the non-guilty ones. And in a real but spiritual way, the righteous requirement of the law that Jesus fulfilled on earth is now ours. The righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Why? Because we are so identified with Christ, we are in Christ, that it is as good as if we kept the Ten Commandments perfectly every day of our lives. And that is amazing. A bit echoey, aren't I, I think? So, in Christ, we are under no condemnation. We are law keepers. The second thing that this passage tells us in verses 5 to 13 is that if you are in Christ, you have true spirituality. True spirituality. Let me read from verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. You see there in verse 9, there are two realms in which a person can walk. And everyone in the world walks in one or other of these two realms. You either walk in the realm of the flesh or the realm of the Spirit. There is no other realm to be walking in. To walk in the realm of the flesh is the non-Christian way. It's when flesh, body, your instincts and desires control you and define you. And that can lead to hostility to God and your own misery and self-destruction. Living in the flesh can destroy your life and destroy the life of other people and your mental well-being as well. And sadly, the majority of people in the United Kingdom live in the realm of the flesh. And that's why we have so many social problems and horrific things that take place and relational problems and fear and crime. It's because people are controlled by their sinful desires. But it is possible through faith in Christ to come out of living in the flesh and to live in Christ, which is the realm of the Spirit. And when you live in the realm of the Spirit, there is life and peace and lasting joy there is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in the realm of the Spirit. And verse 13 describes what those who live in the realm of the Spirit do. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So there is a responsibility that we have got. We've got to put to death the misdeeds of the body, but we can't do it in our own power. So it's by the Spirit that we put to death the misdeeds of the body. See, the flesh won't go away. Sin won't go away. We described it when we looked at this verse as like the, the ultimate villain in Die Hard, Hans Gruber. It's always coming back. Just when Brucey Boy thought he'd put him down, he's never to return, back he comes. Never gives up. 
That's sin. That's the flesh. Always coming back just when you think you've killed it, just when you think that you're over that particular thing, back it comes with a vengeance. So by ourselves, we can't do it. We need a power greater than ourselves to help us overcome our sin. And that's the Spirit. The Spirit. We do not overcome the flesh and our sin by our own ability and determination or own strength. We don't overcome the flesh by cleaning up our own lives. We do so by trusting Christ, who gives us His Spirit, who enables us to overcome. That's the second thing. If you are in Christ, you've got this true spirituality. The third thing is this, verses 14 to 17. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, a child of God. Here we are in these uh, verses 14 to 17. The, these are what we call the Abba verses. So verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. You see that Paul tells us here that in the Spirit, in Christ, we can cry, Abba, Father. And we said that that Abba thing is not about dancing queens and super troopers and Fernandas and Chikatitas. It's not about dungarees and hot pants and jumpsuits and platform boots and sequins. It's all about an Aramaic word that a, a young Hebrew child would call his father, like Dada, Abba, Father, Daddy. And that's the amazing thing we can do in Christ. On Father's Day, we've got a father. We've got the best father. We might have been disappointed in our fathers. They might have let us down, even abused us, hurt us, deserted us. But our true father never will. And it's him we cry out, Abba, Father. So that we can know God, not as some distant, heartless, supreme being, some kind of force, power out there. We can know him as Abba Father, close, intimate, a loving, heavenly Father. So that Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. And we can have the assurance that God is our Father in Christ, because verse 16 tells us, that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. There is this experience that we have that sometimes we just, we just know it. We just know it. It is a thing better felt than telt. We just know it. God is our Father. In Christ, you can know Almighty God as Abba Father with all the significance that that gives you as a Christian child of God. What's more, if you are in Christ, then verses 18 to 25, you have the hope of future glory. The hope of future glory. We read in verse 18 about our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. 
And when we looked at those verses, we said, there are a lot of present sufferings we have. And we were surprised that that verse came after the fact that we could call our God our Abba Father. And we thought, well, he was going to wrap us up in cotton wool and protect us from all troubles, trials, difficulties, and suffering. It's not the way. We live in a fallen world, and what takes place in a fallen world can affect us with our health, our mental well-being, our emotional stability, stability, and the, the social scene that we live in. There is a lot of suffering that happens, and that, these verses tell us, make us groan inwardly. So as we have these present sufferings, they are not to make us think, woe, 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 woe is me forever. They are to make us think, this is terrible, but it's not going to last forever. Because look at the verse again in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So we're not just going to be observers of the glory of God when Jesus returns. We're not just going to say, wow, isn't that great? Actually, that glory will be revealed in us. For verse 17 tells us that we will share in the glory of Christ. The day spring will not just arise outwardly, but in our hearts, 2 Peter chapter 2 tells us. So this glory of Christ, we will be part of it. It's a future glory. We haven't fully got it now. We know a little bit of it now, but we haven't fully got it now. But one day when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and it will be glory not just outside of us, but glory for us. And that is an amazing hope for the future. Be resurrection glory. We mentioned that in the movie Top Gun, Maverick, Admiral Kane said to Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell, the future is coming and you are not part of it. Jesus Christ says to us, the future is coming and you are a very big part of it. The glory will be revealed in us. That is a tremendous hope. When we think of how feeble and weak our bodies might be, the sufferings that we might have in various parts of our life, mind, body, or spirit, one day our bodies will have resurrection power. The next thing we see that if you are in Christ, verses 26 to 27, then your prayers are heard. Your prayers are heard. You might think, when I pray, where does my prayer go? Well, listen, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. And that's true, isn't it? There comes times when we think, how do I pray about my suffering? Do I pray to be healed? Do I pray to die? Do, do I pray that I have perseverance to carry on with the suffering? I don't know what to pray when I'm suffering. So we do not know what to pray for. And sometimes our prayers are a mess. We don't know what's best for us. So we don't know what to pray for. So what happens, verse 26? The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. So when you're praying in your deep suffering, when you're praying, the Spirit comes along, understands that prayer, understands your groans, brings it to God, God knows your mind and the mind of the Spirit by searching our hearts, and he answers it just as he should, according to his will. 
it is always worth praying. A few more things. If you are in Christ, verses 28 to 30, you know for sure that one day you will be like Jesus. Verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. When we looked at those verses, we asked, what is God's main purpose? God's main purpose is to bring us to glory. And that's how verse 30 ends. He also glorified. That's our destination. That's our future. We shall be glorified. So then we worked a little bit backwards, and we said, what does it mean to be glorified? And that's when we looked at verse 29 that said that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what it is to be glorified, to be made perfectly like Jesus. And for those of you outside Christ, you'll say, what's the big deal? But for those of you who love Jesus, for those of you who are in Christ, you will say, that is the best news ever. I try to be like Jesus now. Partially, we are like him. But one day, fully, finally, completely like Jesus. And that's where verse 28 comes in. God working in all things for our good doesn't necessarily mean, of, oh, there's a parking space. That's worked for my good. Thank you, God. What it means is that all those sufferings and trials, God is working in all those things to make me like Jesus until finally I am. So we've seen some amazing things written and read and spoken. We're almost speechless in Surbiton as we think about these things. But verse 31 says, What then shall we say in response to these things? And we looked at verses 31 to 34, and we said this, If we are in Christ, in response to the love of God, we can say that no one of any significance can be against us. We said, secondly, that God will graciously give us all things in Christ because he has not spared his own son. He's given us the best. We said, thirdly, that God has justified us so nobody can bring a charge against us. And we said, fourthly, God will never, ever condemn us because Jesus Christ has died for us and given us his righteousness. We said all those things, and we took a few weeks to say them. But notice that all those things are for us. I just want you to notice the repetition of those words, for us. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things, if God is for us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Yes, the plan of salvation is for the glory of God, but the plan of salvation is also for us. Every little thing I do, I do for you. 
God could say. It's all for us. See, none of this would have happened without us. None of it. It wouldn't have needed to. But Jesus was born for us. To you this day in the town of David, a Savior has been born. To you, for you, for us. Jesus wouldn't have lived if it wasn't for us. And Jesus wouldn't have died if it wasn't for us. The wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned, so he would never have died. He would have lived forever. But he took our sin upon himself, so he died for us. He wouldn't have died if it wasn't for you and for me. He died for us. God has done all this because of how much he loves us. If God has already done all that for us, then in Christ you can be absolutely sure that no one, not anyone, not even God himself will turn around and say, you're banned from heaven. And so, verses 35 to 39, the final verses. If you are in Christ, then you can know that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus and the Apostle Paul brought forth the challenges. Bring, bring forth whoever you like to try and separate us from Christ. And Paul brought on the, the contestants there in verse 35. Trouble and his menacing cousins. Hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. Let them try to separate us from the love of Christ. They can't. We emerge from this contest of people and things trying to cut us off from Christ. We emerge as more than conquerors, super Nikes. At times, we may seem to be overcome, and yet we rise. But I'll rise up, high like the waves. I'll rise up in spite of the ache. I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again. I'll rise up. No matter how much Satan tries to put you down, no matter how much sin tries to get the better of you, you will rise up as a super conqueror because of God in your life. In Christ, you can be sure that God's love will never grow cold and will never let you go. Ever. That's why I couldn't close the door in Romans chapter 8. <laughs> I'm still reveling in it. You know, God has a love that will never give up on you. God has a love that will never, ever let you go. Ever. Let me tell you as we close about a Scotsman called George Matheson. He was a pastor, and he wrote a most beautiful hymn. He wrote it in 1882. And it's a hymn that tells of the love of God that will never let us go. The story behind the hymn is very sad, actually. George Matheson was engaged to the girl he was deeply, deeply in love with. They had plans for marriage. But George Matheson found out he was gradually going blind. So he thought he'd better tell his fiancée what would inevitably happen. He didn't know how she would respond. She responded in the most cruel, horrible way. She left him to go blind by himself. Horribly, she broke off the engagement. She left him. She cut off her love from him. George Matheson's sister came in and lived with her brother for 20 years, caring for him, providing for him, helping him in every way. And then after 20 years, the day came when George Matheson's sister would get married. And she left him as well. 
George Matheson was all on his own. And the night before the wedding day of his sister, he sat down and he thought of a hymn and got somebody to pen it down. He wrote a hymn feeling totally alone about the love of God that would never let him go. And it's got four verses, and the first verse reads like this. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And what he imagined there in his mind was that his weary soul that had been deserted by his loved ones, his weary soul given back to God, would one day flow in the ocean depths of God's love. And that would be a richer, fuller love than he'd ever known before. And the second verse goes on. O light that follows all my way, I yield my flickering torch to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, that in thy sunshine's blaze, its day may brighter, fuller, fairer be. He saw his life, his body, his existence as a flickering torch. He was about to go out. But as he yields his life to Christ, the heart is renewed and restored. And the sunshine blaze of God's love comes to him so that he lives brighter and fairer than ever. The third verse. O joy that seekest me through pain. And he had a lot of pain. I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn shall tearless be. How many tears did George Matheson shed when his loved ones deserted him? But God would never desert him. And God sought him through the pain of his life and it was like a rainbow through the pouring rain. And George Matheson knew that one day there would be a morning when every tear is wiped away. And the final verse. O cross that lift us up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. It's beautiful, beautiful. Life's glory dead. And that's what is it. He felt all the glory around him was dead. But one day he knew that there would be a new life that would never end, that would blossom from that death. Thank you, Lord, for the things that are true of us in Christ and only in Christ and his salvation. And thank you, Lord, that you have a love for us that's demonstrated for us in Christ. Thank you for all the wonders of Romans chapter 8. And thank you, Lord, for the wonder of your great love. Thank you that it is an ocean depth in which our life can be richer and fuller. Thank you that your love is like a sunshine's blaze that makes our day brighter and fairer. Thank you that your love can be seen even through the pain. And one day we will have a morning that will be tearless. And thank you, Lord, that though life's glory might be dead for us in so many ways, yet from the ground, through the cross of Christ, there blossoms red a life that shall endless be. These things money cannot buy, 
These things are more than tongue can tell. These things are wonderful. Praise you. Thank you. Amen.